You are listening to the Wickenburg Pulpit, the preaching ministry of First Southern Baptist Church of Wickenburg, Arizona, where we seek to be faithful to Scripture and relevant to life. How many of you are sports fans in here? Okay, most everybody. Now, in a Washington Post article in 2015, or rather 2014, it says this, when it comes to supporting their favorite sports team, many Americans pray or perform game day rituals that they think will affect the outcome of the game. A survey released to the Public Religion Research Institute looked at the link between team spirit and fan spirituality. The survey found that 60% of Americans say they're fans of a particular team, and many of them said they would do something to help their team along in an important game. Almost a quarter of those fans will wear special clothes, such as a team jersey on game day, and 26% said they would pray and ask God to help their team win. According to the results, football fans are more likely than the fans of other sports to admit to praying for their team or performing some ritual before a game. Now, we may hear that and we may think that's absurd, or, or you may agree and wear your lucky unwashed socks every time the Diamondbacks play a game. I'm not sure. You keep that to yourself. In the same way, though, here the Judaizers in the scripture taught that if you really wanted to go to heaven, if you really wanted to affect the outcome of your eternal destiny, then you needed to observe the rituals of circumcision. You needed to observe things like the feasts. But as Paul has preached throughout this book of Galatians, that seeking salvation by law only leads to slavery. But the gospel tells us that we're no longer slaves, but sons. And in the first verses of chapter 4 and in the, these last verses in chapter 4, we see that we're no longer slaves, but the gospel gives us freedom. And then here in Galatians 5.1, we see that Christ has set us free so that we would be free indeed. Let me read this passage and then we will dive in. We're looking at verses 1 through 6. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, then Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. Now, many people think that freedom means that we can do whatever we want. At the end of the movie, I, Robot, made in 2004, starring Will Smith, the robot named Sonny has fulfilled the objectives of his design program. But now he realizes he no longer has a purpose. The movie concludes with a dialogue between Sonny and the other main character, Detective Spooner. The robot says this, Now that I have fulfilled my purpose, I don't know what to do. 
Detective Spooner says, I guess you'll have to find your way like the rest of us, Sonny. That's what it means to be free. In this view, freedom means that there is no overarching purpose for which we were created. If there were, we would be obligated to conform to it and fulfill it, and that is therefore limiting. In this view, freedom is the freedom to create your own meaning and purpose. But listen to what theologian Bruce Ware says. Freedom is not what our culture tells us it is. Freedom is not my deciding from the urges and longings of my sinful nature to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, and how I want to do it, and with whom I want to do it with. According to the Bible, that is bondage, not freedom. Rather, true freedom is living as Jesus lived, for he is the freest human being who ever has lived. In fact, he is the only fully free human being who has ever lived, and one day we will be set free fully when we always and only do the will of God. So what is freedom? Amazingly, Jesus' answer is this. Freedom is submitting. Submitting fully to the will of God, to the words of God, and to the work that God calls us to do. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, and you may know this verse, and finish it for me if you know it. And you will know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. In our culture today, freedom is casting off any truth that seeks to oppress us and tell us how to live. But freedom is found, as Jesus says, knowing and submitting to the truth, not casting it aside. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, we see this downward spiral of sinfulness. And we see that what they do in Romans chapter 1, it says they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, if knowing the truth and living by the truth leads to freedom, what do you think suppressing the truth does for us? It leads to slavery. And we see that in Romans of this downward spiral into deepening sinful patterns. If we look in Scripture, if you think about it, other than Jesus Christ, Adam and Eve were the most free human beings other than Jesus. They didn't have a sin nature. They enjoyed a freedom in the garden that gave them a relationship with God. They could eat from any tree of the garden except for one. They had complete freedom in the garden with one small boundary. But the enemy comes along and causes them to see their freedom as bondage. And God is, God is limiting you. He doesn't want you to eat that because he knows you will be like him. Don't you want to be your own God? Stop letting God limit you and eat the fruit that he has forbidden. Our culture thinks the same way, that freedom is casting off God's authority. But we see that when Adam and Eve cast off God's authority, they actually lost their freedom, fell into the bondage of a sinful nature, and were cast out of the garden experiencing pain, shame, and suffering. In our text today, we see the purpose for which Christ came, that he came to set us free from the curse of the law. We look in chapter 5, verse 1, it says this, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Literally, Christ set you free so that you would be free. But what do we do with this freedom? Last week we saw this emphasis on freedom. And in our text today, I want us to look at three things that we ought to do with the freedom that we have in the gospel. And number one, you are free. Now stand firm in the gospel. 
You are free. Now stand firm in the gospel. Let's come straight from verse 1 here. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Christ had become a curse for us. He, he took upon our sin. The curse, he took upon the curse of the law by dying on the cross so that we may experience the freedom from the curse of the law. Our response, according to verse 1, is, is to stand firm in the freedom of the gospel. Now, the word for stand firm has this idea of persevering. To stand your ground and not lose your footing. The Galatians seem to have received the word with eagerness as Paul planted these Galatian, Galatian churches and they begin to grow. But now false teachers are coming along and proclaiming a message that will rob them of joy and enslave them to a system that cannot save. Standing firm means to not give into the pressure like Adam and Eve did. Paul is saying, listen, you, you, you've heard the gospel that justifies. You've heard the gospel that adopts you as sons. You've heard the gospel that gives you freedom. You once were enslaved to pagan deities. Now don't go back to a system that will enslave you all over again. Don't go back to a system that tells you how to earn your salvation because you can't do that. Stand firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Now, this word to be subject here in verse 1 literally means to be entangled. To be entangled. Now, we see this also, we see this word yoke. Do not be subject again. Do not be entangled again to a yoke of slavery. A yoke is something that you would put on a cattle uh, so that they would go where you want them to go as you plowed a field. When, when a yoke is placed on a cow, they are not free. He compares, this, he compares the message of the Judaizers to a yoke placed on a cow. He's telling them not to get entangled in this teaching because you won't experience the freedom the gospel promises. Rather, you'll be like cows yoked together at the bidding of whoever is controlling you. Now, why ought they to stand firm? First thing I want to see under this heading they ought to stand firm because if they get entangled in false teaching, they will not experience the benefits of the gospel. They need to stand firm because if they get entangled with false teaching, they will not experience the benefits of the gospel. Look at verse 2. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. Now, if we go back in the New Testament a little bit, we see that Paul actually had Timothy circumcised. Uh, Timothy was to go and, and preach the gospel to a Jewish audience, and, and Paul had him circumcised. Now, Paul did not have Timothy circumcised because he believed it would contribute to his salvation, but because it would open up doors to share the gospel of grace with a Jewish community. If Timothy wasn't circumcised, they probably would have even listened to one word he had to say. But what Paul means here is if you, by, by if you receive circumcision, if you receive it as a means of earning favor with God, if you receive it as a means that contributes to your salvation, then Christ's death is of no benefit to you. It is meaningless. And dear friends, if you are trusting in anything else to get you enough points to get into heaven, then Jesus' blood does nothing for you. If you get to heaven 
at the day of judgment, and I know the whole image of, you know, St. Peter's at the gates. I don't think he really is, but imagine for a moment he is. Why should we let you in? If your answer is, well, I went to church every chance I got. I volunteered to serve on the committees that no one else wanted to serve on. I, I never said a cuss word. I opened the door for people in public places. I, I, t- I tithed and I gave to other nonprofits. I helped people when I can. You know, all of those things are good things. But none of those gets us in the door. We have a sin nature and we can't earn enough points to deserve heaven. If we answer anything other than the redeeming work of Jesus on the cross alone, then his blood does nothing for us. Rather, if we say as the old song says, I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. That is our only hope. If we receive anything else, with the hope that it gets us to heaven other than the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ does nothing for us. The good news is, church, that if you're believing in Jesus and you're standing in the gospel, if you're standing in this freeing work of Jesus and his death to free you from the curse of the law, then his death is of great benefit to you. And you can sing these words with confidence and joy. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Church, do you believe that? Are you standing firm in these gospel truths? Or have you turned away to something else? The second thing is if we get entangled into legalism, then we become condemned by the entire law. Look at verse 3 here. It says, Then I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You see, if, if we're seeking salvation by law, we can't cherry pick which laws we would like to be saved by. And Paul says, You're under obligation then to keep the entirety of it. James says it this way. He says, forever who keeps the law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Now, James kind of sets that bar high, doesn't he? If you're seeking salvation through law and you fail in the smallest little part of the law, then you are condemned. Now, we're familiar with the Ten Commandments, aren't we? You know, uh, Shall not have any other gods before me. I don't want to go through because I'll probably miss one. Um, don't keep the Lord's, don't, don't use the Lord's name in vain. Keep the Sabbath day holy. Don't have any graven images. Honor your mother. We all, we all know, we know the Ten Commandments. But do you know how many commandments in the Old Testament there actually are? There's not just ten of them. Anybody know? I've got it written down so I, I'm, I can cheat. But it, 613. 613 Old Testament laws. And so what Paul is saying is, if you're seeking to be saved by the law, you can't just boast of circumcision. You, you, you place yourself under all of these 613 laws. You're under obligation to obedient to all of them. Now, as we have seen, the law is right and good when we understand its proper use. 
The law reveals the knowledge of sin. The law leads us to Christ. But using the law as a means for salvation, you will be condemned by it. You will be condemned by it. Salvation can only be found in Jesus, so we must stand firm in the freedom of the gospel. You know, what's so beautiful is that Jesus Christ fulfilled all 613 of these laws. He lived in obedience to the entire law for us. Why would we want to bear that burden that we cannot bear? That is meant to be placed on Jesus. Trust in him alone. The third thing I want us to see is if, if we get entangled into a false gospel that doesn't save, then we're cut off from the grace of Christ. In verse 4, we have an interesting verse here. It says, you have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Now, first, let me share what this verse is not saying. This verse is not saying that genuine believers can lose their salvation. We shared several passages last Sunday that give us confident assurance of our salvation. What we see here is this is not written to people who have been justified by faith. This is written to people who are seeking to be justified by law. Do you see that? You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law. When we are justified and declared right by God on the basis of faith alone, he keeps us. We are secure in him. That's not what this passage is talking about. These people are seeking to be justified by circumcision, literally severing their foreskin. And so Paul is using a play on on words here. You who seek to be saved by severing, by cutting off your skin, you are actually cutting yourselves off from Christ. He is using this as a strong warning to get them to see that they need to trust in Christ alone and find freedom from the curse of the law through the gospel. And when the text mentions here falling from grace, again, he isn't making a comment of our eternal security like we can fall out of saving grace. That, that doesn't really make sense at all because God saved us by grace while we were still sinners. And the gospel covers us of all of our sin. He isn't going to remove that grace from us because we're sinners. What it does mean is that if you're seeking salvation apart from Christ, if you're seeking to enter into heaven other than through Jesus Christ alone, then the grace that saves us is not upon you. You have fallen away from any hope of grace by trusting in something other than the gospel to save you. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, stand firm in the freedom of the gospel. Enjoy the freedom that we have in Christ, knowing that he has paid for all of your sins. We can breathe a sigh of relief knowing that Jesus, in his death and resurrection, has accomplished everything necessary for our salvation. Do not waver in that. There will be thousands of false gospels that come and try to draw you away from the, from the gospel of Jesus. As Paul was talking to the elders at Ephesus near the end of his ministry, he says, Be on guard for yourselves and all the flock 
among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. Friends, false teachers are lurking around everywhere. We can get a hold of false teaching by the click of a button on a TV, by going to a YouTube channel or listening to a podcast. We must be on guard and stand firm in the gospel. We must not get ourselves entangled in false teaching. Even the other day, uh, on a Facebook group here in town, there were these young ladies trying to tell people about the restored gospel. Dear church, the gospel has been preserved through the ages. The gospel does not need to be restored. The gospel does not need to be updated. There is no gospel 2.0. We don't need to add to it. We don't need to change it. God has spoken and revealed his saving gospel in the pages of the Bible. Dear church, as your pastor and as your shepherd, I would love for you to come to me and ask me about folks that you're watching or listening to. That's our job as a shepherd is to shepherd your souls. Pastor, what are your thoughts on this guy? If you want to read a particular book or on a particular topic, don't just pick the bestseller. I'd love to give you those recommendations. This is why God gives us pastors and teachers, is to shepherd our souls and keep us from falling prey to false teaching. Dear believers, be on guard against false teaching. Don't be casual in your approach to God and his word. Take the truth seriously. Test everything. Be like the Bereans in Acts 17 who received the word with eagerness, but examined the scriptures daily to see if the things Paul was preaching was accurate. Earlier in Galatians, Paul said, If anyone is preaching another gospel, let him be accursed. If anyone is believing another gospel, he is already accursed. There is only one gospel, church, and it alone has the power to save. Stand firm in it. The second thing I want us to see is that you are free, and now wait for the hope of the gospel. Now wait for gospel hope. While those seeking to be justified by law sever themselves from any hope of God's grace, those who have been made right with God, who have been freed from the curse of the law through Christ alone, Paul says this in verse 5, for we through the Spirit by faith are waiting for the hope of righteousness. What I want us to see here is that salvation is not something we work for. Salvation is something we wait for. Now, in a very real sense, if you are trusting in Jesus by faith, you are saved right now. But there is, a time, there is another sense in which we will be saved. We will fully and finally be saved at the day of judgment. First, it says here that we're able, we're able to wait for this hope through the Spirit. That means uh, if we are waiting for this hope, that means we have the Spirit of God inside of us. We're able to wait for this hope by faith, that we are trusting in Jesus alone. We can't wait for this hope through the works of the law. 
We wait for this hope through the Spirit and by faith. If we are seeking salvation apart from the regeneration of the Spirit that results in faith, if we're seeking salvation in our own effort, you can wait for that day all that you want, but you're going to be delivered some fatal news. But those who have been born again by the Spirit, who are trusting in the gospel by faith and enjoying this freedom the gospel brings, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness, as it says. And we wait. Though we've experienced the blessings of the gospel now, we will not fully and finally experience the final judgment and that final declaration that we are righteous until judgment day. If we are trusting in Jesus by faith, that day will yield positive news. What are we waiting for? The hope of righteousness. The hope that we will be declared righteous and at that point be fully and finally made perfect as Christ is perfect. We have been positionally made righteous now through justification, but that day we will be fully and finally made righteous through glorification. Now, I want to zero in on this word hope here. The word hope in Scripture is different than how we use it today. How we use the word hope typically in our vernacular today is a word that expresses desire with no certainty. I could say, man, I sure do hope it's not going to be too hot tomorrow. Well, it probably will be. Or I could say, man, I sure do hope we get some rain tomorrow. Well, we probably won't. Or I could say, man, I sure do hope I can get a motorcycle one day. Well, that's not going to happen either. The word hope in the Bible, however, expresses certainty. Waiting for the hope of righteousness doesn't mean we're waiting for the possibility, maybe, but probably not, to be declared righteous. Like we're sweating and thinking, man, I, I really do hope that Jesus' blood really, really does cover all my sin, but I, I, I don't know. No, we are waiting with absolute certainty and absolute confidence that we will receive a not guilty verdict on the day of judgment because our faith is in Jesus. We can wait on that day in faith because we know without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus has accomplished everything necessary to our atone for our sins, that his blood has covered us. As we have been saved by the gospel, and the gospel has freed us from the demands of the law, what do we do now? We stand firm and we wait. We wait with confident hope that on the day of judgment we will be declared righteous on the basis of faith in Christ's perfect obedience to the law and his substitutionary death and his victorious resurrection. Having been set free from the curse of the law, we can wait with certain hope. We don't have to sweat with anxiety wondering if we've done enough because Christ has paid it all. As we wait, we don't wait idly. We aren't sitting back and waiting on the porch until Jesus returns. As we wait, we submit to him and his will for our lives, and we wait with confident expectation for that day of judgment because we will know we will hear good news. We're trusting in the work of Jesus alone to save us. And number three, you are free. Now demonstrate your faith through love. In verse six here, Paul puts everybody on the same level. 
He says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision mean anything but faith working through love. Now, what I want us to understand here is that in the Old Testament, circumcision marked you off as the people of God. How do you know you were one of God's people is if you were circumcised. You had all of the male children on the eighth day circumcised, and that set you apart as an Israelite. But as we've seen in the book of Galatians, it isn't national Israel who are sons of Abraham and therefore sons of God, but those who believe in God's promises fulfilled as Abraham trusted in God's promises that were made. Paul is coming along and saying, look, it's not circumcision that marks the people of God. And he's also saying it's not uncircumcision. Neither one of those do anything for you. What marks the people of God? He says it's faith working through love. Paul here in Galatians echoes what James says in James 2, that saving faith is demonstrated by works. Here Paul is saying that faith is evidenced through love. It's as if he's asking, do you believe that we're saved by grace? Are you trusting in the gospel? If, if you believe that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, that, that while we were in our most unlovable state, that God loved us enough to send his own son to atone for our sins, then the way that we demonstrate that faith visibly is by loving others also. Faith is an idol. Faith that saves is a faith that is demonstrable. And it is expressed through love, Paul says here. We use our gospel freedom to demonstrate our faith through love. Martin Luther, in his commentary on Galatians, on this particular passage, he says this, Paul, therefore, in this verse, sets forth the whole life of a Christian, namely that inwardly it consists consists in faith toward God and outwardly in loving works to our neighbor. Paul is saying, you have have faith that God so loved the world that he sent his son Jesus to die in the place of sinners? Show it by loving sinners for whom Jesus died for. All throughout scripture, we're called to love one another within the, the body of Christ. In John 13, 34, we're told to love one another. Jesus says, even as I have loved you. In verse 35, he says this, this is how all men will know that you are my disciples. If what? Anybody know? If you have a pristine theology figured out. Is that what he says? If you serve on every committee at the church. Is that what he says? No, he doesn't say that. If you love one another. This is how all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What marks the people of God today? How do people know that we are in Christ, that we are following Jesus? It's not whether we've been circumcised or not. It's not whether our name's necessarily on the the church roll. That's important. But do you love one another? Do you love one another? If Jesus so loved us, and he has, then the distinguishing mark of the believer is one of love. And the church is to be the place where we love one another, where that is most visibly seen. 
Paul even gets at this in, in 5.13. We're going to preach this in subsequent sermons, but, but let, me, let me read this here really quick here in verse 13. For you, will, you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law was fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. The church of the Lord Jesus should be such a place that experiences the unity of the gospel and a love motivated by the gospel that looks distinctly different than the rest of the world. You have been freed from the curse of the law, freed from the bondage of sin. Now use that freedom to demonstrate your faith by loving others. Dear church, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Praise God for that. But what do we do in response? We stand firm in the truths of the gospel. We wait with confidence and certainty for the day of judgment. Because we know with certainty, if we are believers, that we are declared righteous by faith alone. We demonstrate our faith by loving others because it is love for one another that marks the believer and sets you apart. If you're not a Christian today, friend, if you're here today and you're not trusting in Jesus alone, then you have no hope of eternal life. You are enslaved to your sin. You are in bondage to your sin nature. And Jesus lived a perfect life in obedience to the law so that you can be clothed with his perfect righteousness. He died in your place on the cross, taking your sin upon him, bearing the weight of your sin. He was crushed for your iniquities. And he rose victorious from the grave, defeating sin, death, and the devil. He did this so that you can experience the freedom the gospel brings if you're not a Christian today, I implore you to trust in him today by faith. To the believer this morning, you're trusting in Jesus. You know it's the gospel alone that saves you. But dear friends, be on guard. Stand firm. The devil wants nothing more than to draw you away from the truth. And a word to the church. May we be a church known for our love for one another. May the people outside the church know us as a church with an unwavering commitment to the truths of the gospel, an unwavering commitment to share the gospel, and an unwavering commitment to love one another in response to the gospel. This is how all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Let's pray.